chapter 13. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains, all the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Geshurites, from the Shehor, which is east of Egypt, northwards to the boundary of Ekron. It is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of the Avin in the south, all the land of the Canaanites, and Merah that belonged to the Sidonians, to Aphek, to the boundary of the Amorites, and the land of the Gebelites, and all Lebanon towards the sunrise, from Baal Gad below Mount Hermon to Lebohamath, all the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon to Misrephoth Maim, even all the Sidonians, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel, only, only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now therefore divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. Please keep your Bibles open. Good afternoon. Wonderful to be back. I guess we haven't, some of us haven't really been away, but um, good to have you anyway. And good to have some uh, people joining us. Uh, my good friend uh, Dilly at the back there. Um, Tommy, welcome. Can we have a cheer? We don't, we don't cheer everyone who comes to our church, only, only if they're West Ham supporters. Um, so Tommy gets a special cheer. Um, it's a bit of an unusual passage, isn't it, to jump into, Joshua 13. I guess you probably wouldn't go to a, ch- a church, or even you speak to Christians, Have they? do they know what it means? Do, do they know what it says, even? It's a bit of an obscure part of the Bible, isn't it? Well, not so obscure for us at Beckhamtree Church, because we have actually been from chapters 1 through to 12, and we divided it sort of half and half. There's 24 chapters in Joshua. Um, so we are just launching back into a series that we started earlier this year and got halfway through. Um, so I guess most of the people can remember something of that, hopefully. Joshua, yeah, ring a bell? Great, wonderful. Um, today was going to be a dedication for one of the uh, young uh, babies in our church. Um, so I was expecting there to be large family groups of like relatives and you know lots of people like that. And so I was going to introduce this subject as being like a, a bit of a clangor in the room, you know, like an elephant in the room. Um, inheritance, yeah? Talk about inheritance when it comes to family. Division, you know, there's often mixed opinion on, on that. And it often gets people um, falling out, doesn't it? And recently, a bloke called Sam in our church took all the blokes on a camping trip. And we did one night away in Kent. Don't ask me where it was, because Kent is just like that deep, dark place. You just, you just get lost. Um, this is where we went. You can see the cows are staring us out because basically we nicked their field for a night. Um, so they wanted to trample us. Um, so it wasn't the greatest night's sleep. But when we turned up, Sam took us... It's, it's a farm that he likes to volunteer at. And Sam basically walked, uh, got us there. First thing he did was show us 
all of the land that belonged to the farmer. And he pointed out all the boundaries of that land. And he said, this is the boundary, that's the boundary, that's the boundary. This belongs to her, that belongs to someone else. And that's the kind of thing that's going on, exactly the kind of thing, in fact, that's going on in Joshua 13. Because it's, uh, the writer is pointing out the boundaries of the land of God's people. And that land is an inheritance. So land as an inheritance is what we're looking at in Joshua 13. And it's actually what we're going to be looking at as we go through to the rest of, the, of Joshua. We're going to be looking at the land as inheritance for God's people. And thinking about that and what that means. Okay? That's the ballpark of what we're doing. We half expected Sam to finish his tour, by the way, with, you know, and one day all of this will be mine. <laughs> you know, we just, it's just aching for it. You know, he just said, this boundary, that field, that field. He was, had pride and pleasure in his voice. One day all this will be mine. Um, this is about inheritance of God's people. In this first section, which Gemma just read, 1 to 7. God gives a command to Joshua, and uh, it starts off, I guess, not that great, is it? You are old and advanced in years. Now, I prefer the second. If someone was going to say, you're advanced in years, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I'm going I'm to use that one rather than the old, you are old. Um, but it's the next phase in God's people receiving the land that God has already been conquering for them, uh, for his people, to be a land of blessing where they could be with him. And that was the big thing that God had promised. But this is phase two. Because if Joshua can no longer lead the the country into battle, because he's too old, he needs to appoint uh, the portions of the land that are yet to be taken to each of the tribes. And it's then therefore their responsibility to go and to continue with the work. So it's a bit of a baton on the relay. He's passing on the baton here. And God says, you need to draw lots, which is just like rolling a dice to find out which bits of the land belong to different people, and then it's their responsibility to carry on. So, uh, let's look at that in verses 1 to 3. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. This is a land that yet remains. If you go all the way down to halfway through verse 6, the Lord says, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel, only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Um, as I said, it's the responsibility of each tribe to, to take the land that's given to them. And if you look at verses 6, uh, verses 8 onwards, we're going to do... That talks about Moses. And you might think, well... what? Why is it talking about Moses? We're in Joshua. Moses is dead. But it's, re- it's recapping the land that Moses had already given to the two and a half, uh, three and a half tribes. I think it is. Two and a half tribes. Um, and so the nine and a half adds up to the twelve. You get it, right? Twelve tribes. That's why in verse eight you get with the other half of the tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites and the Gadites. That's the, the two and a half. In verse 15... You find out what the inheritance to the tribe of Reuben is. In verse 24, you find out what the inheritance to the tribe of Gad is. And in verse 29, you find out what it is to the half-tribe of Manasseh. And then the summaries in verse 32. These are the inheritances that Moses distributed in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan east of Jericho. So that's the structure of the chapter. 
Uh, we didn't read all of it. We spared you the kind of long names and places and borders and boundaries, but it's there, and it is important, and we'll find out why that is. And because it's not our names being read out, it is a bit tedious, isn't it? As in, if there is a part of the Bible where we were going to sort of lose a bit of concentration, it might be this one. And yet, I guess if it was our name being read out, we'd be waiting on bated breath, wouldn't we? We'd be listening in. What's our inheritance? Which bit is? Which bit are we going to get? Um, and that's exactly what it would have been like for the people. But why is this here in the Bible? Because the Bible is God's word and it's useful for us, equipping us, training us for righteousness today. So what, why is this long list in the Bible? Is it just a proof of ownership for the people? So they've got their receipts. But mind you, the receipt is the thing that you stuff in your bag without looking at. And you only really care when the buzzer goes off and the security guard steps up. Isn't that right? In the TK Maxx store, yeah? Um, that is, that's when you care about what's on the receipt. You don't read it, other than that. But at the same time, um, and, or is it just a peace agreement so that the people uh, don't fall out? They know who's got what and they, they can no longer dispute what it is. Again, it's not a document that you really care about until there's a dispute. So why is this long? I mean, we're going to spend the next six chapters, by the way, going through each inheritance for each tribe. You see that in verse uh, 6 of verse chapter 14. We begin the nine and a half tribes. Judah, that's what we're going to look at next week. Um, in chapter 16, you get um, Josh, uh, Joseph, sorry. And then we carry on, and, and you look at all of them in the, uh, chapter 18. Uh, Benjamin... Simeon, Zebulun, Issachar, Naphtali, Dan, and then finally with Joshua, and it finishes up at the end of chapter 19. So six whole chapters of the Bible have got this record. You think, was it just meant to be stuffed in the bag as a receipt? No. So what's his purpose? Why is it here? In amongst the details about land and boundaries in this chapter, there's a few narrator's comments. And they're quite telling, actually. Um, there's one in verse 13. There's one in verse 14. And then the first two that we're going to look at. And these comments point to a deeper function to, these verse, to this record. What it's meant to achieve. And if it's an account of what the tribes were, had received and been delegated in order that they may do something as a response then if the report might actually show that they haven't done that thing that they were meant to do. So you see, there's a slightly more pointed purpose then to saying this was what the tribe got if they haven't done anything about it or if they haven't fully um, done something about it. So that's the first thing we see. Our first point for today is details bring disobedience to light. Details bring disobedience to light. And we see that in verse 13. So it says in verse 13... Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Megathites, but Gesher and Makath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. So from the perspective of the writer writing later, he can still say that these guys are still in the land. The people didn't do what they were meant to do. Um, and actually, the details will always show that we are disobedient. Okay? The details will always show that we are disobedient. The mankind, you and I, we disobey God. 
We don't follow through on his commands. We don't even follow through on our own expectations of ourselves. We are disobedient. And that's what it showed here, that the people were disobedient. God was faithful. He kept his part of the bargain. He kept his promise. They did not. They are unfaithful. So that's the first thing that details show. It's not that much of an encouragement, is it really? But details bring our disobedience to light. And when I want you to think I'm a good person, all I need to do, or when I want to think I'm a good person even, all I need to do is gloss over the reality of my life to sort of do a helicopter view of, you know, something in uni where I try to live with my housemates and get on with them, or, uh, you know, parachute into a really nice time in my teenage years. There wasn't really one. Um, But I can do a helicopter view and say, hey, my life is pretty good. I can pretend that I'm trying to be a good person and that I'm doing an all right job of it, better than some. But when you zoom in on the detail, that's when you see what the reality is like. So if you want to know how I use my words, don't ask the Amazon delivery man if they're kind, because I'm always kind to the Amazon delivery man. Ask Hannah, because she lives with me. So when you see the details of my life, you will see that I'm disobedient, that I am just like these people here. I am rebellious. I don't live as God wants me to. Um, He is loving, truthful, faithful, slow to anger, and I am not like him. And you will see that when you look at the details. So God's holiness requires that he does not overlook these details of our lives. He has to look at them. And he would be absolutely right when he looks at them, as he one day will, to hold us to account for them. So that's, what, that's the, the hard news, isn't it? Details show our disobedience. We are disobedient. We are sinners. We break God's commands. And if that was the last word, we'd all leave, leave here pretty depressed, wouldn't we? And our futures, actually, truthfully, would be tragically bleak. We would all be facing God's judgment. And yet, even here, God's provision uh, that sin can be paid for is actually in amongst this chapter. Look at it in verse 14. To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. Poor Levi. I mean, gosh, what have they done wrong? Everyone else is getting these massive, like, bits of land, rights to this massive land, and the Levites get nothing. You know, that's a bit harsh, isn't it? I mean, what, what's all that about? We tend to feel quite sorry for them, don't we? But if this, is as, if this is as awkward as it seems to us, then why does the narrator feel the need to keep banging on about it? To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance, in verse 14. Uh, in verse 33, it's repeated, but to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. And then in 14, verse 3, for Moses had given an inheritance to the two and a half tribes, but to the Levites, Levites he gave no inheritance among them. If it was an awkward thing, you think he would just try to brush over it, right? Move on. He wants to sort of dwell on the thing that, like, that's really awkward I mean some people like to do that but um, no it's the people at the time knew what the Levites were delegated to do and the reason they didn't have an inheritance of land was because they didn't need land why? the Levites were designated as those who would work in the temple as priests 
That was their job. So they had a place to stay. They had food to eat, meals provided. They didn't need to build houses. They didn't need uh, the land to uh, to whatever you do with land. Um, They didn't need to do that to live. They had it all provided with their work. So the Levites were to be priests. But how does that answer that question of the details showing how sin can be paid? Because there's a comment here about God providing something within the whole setup right from the very start that there would be a way for sin to be paid for. Levites working in the temple. Temple was the centre of the nation. And in the centre of the, uh, the, the city was the temple. And the centre of the temple was the sacrifice, the offering. And that was an offering for sin. So the priest's number one job was to help the people to bring their offering. And the offering showed that sin could be paid for. That was the big picture. So if you were a young person looking at uh, what people did in the temple, what you would see is that sin is serious, serious enough that something, someone would have to die. And it's either going to be you or it's going to be the one that God provides. It would have been a pretty shocking experience to go into the temple and see the bloodshed, the death on display. It's graphic, but it shows that sin can be paid for, but only when God provides an alternative and God provided an alternative then but it was only ever a picture that was pointing us to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that sin can be paid for for you and for me and that is exactly what Jesus did he was the sacrifice his perfect life was given up on the cross so the details here, the Levi's not receiving an inheritance, isn't there sort of a boo-boo for them? It's actually a way. Because God has provided a way that sin can be, be paid for. The third thing that details show, and this is where we're going to end up, the details prove that inheritance is real. Okay? That, uh, sorry, eternity is real. The, the details prove that eternity is real. I guess you probably, like me, have had that shock moment where you've done an online booking, maybe it's to an event, to something you wanted to go and do, or maybe it's something you wanted to buy, and it's not turned out as you'd expected. Like, I mean, sort of seriously different to what you expected. And that's an awkward moment, isn't it? You drag all your mates along to this thing, to the Marble Arch Mound, for example. Has anyone been there? Don't bother to be honest, because it was meant to look like that, and it looks like that. It's free. Well, (laughs) I mean, are they going to get anyone to pay to go there? So the expectation is never quite the same, is it? You know, you think you're going to that, and yeah, it does look a bit fuzzy with loads of trees and stuff, but it looks at least like a... But if you go there and it looks like that, that's, that's ridiculous. The other picture you saw, by the way, was... Um, clothing that you buy online and if you t- type in internet clothing fails and just have a have a bit of a lol you know just 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 li- looking at all those pictures of people who order something in a catalogue online and it, it may not look like this and it doesn't it looks like that well what we have here is the detail of what God provided 
And you know what? It's just as God said it would be. Down to every last detail. The inheritance, though just a temporary inheritance it turned out, here, was detailed and God went through with it. What he said they would get was what they got. And that means as well that if, for us, we are trusting in Jesus, the inheritance and the eternal home that he promises is going to be just as he said it was going to be. Now, lots of people would say, you can't really know, can you? Or you, um, you know, it's just a bit of guesswork. Or maybe that what's promised in the Bible is just a metaphor. It's just sort of like, it's just... Yeah, it's sort of describing something else, something spiritual, something not real, tangible, physical. But that's not true. Because this proves that when God speaks, he promises an inheritance that is real. So we've got to get with the program and see that what God describes in the future of his kingdom is the reality that is coming. That's good news for God's people and it's terrible news for those who rebel against him. And will not accept his forgiveness. Will not accept the sin being paid for on the cross. But it is real. It's not a spiritual sort of um, a concept. It's not a metaphor. The eternity in God's kingdom is real. You might say, and rightly so, so God delivered on the land for them. Great for them, but what's that got to do with me? Uh, well, it is good, isn't it, when we um, start to think of what we are going to learn and take home from this part of the Bible. Uh, the summary is uh, that we've seen that details show we are disobedient. They show how God has provided the way to pay for sin. And they also show that we can trust what God says will happen in eternity. But how are we going to respond to that? Because... It's one thing for God to promise something and his promise to be trustworthy. It's quite another thing, isn't it, to believe it and to trust it ourselves. So it might be that you've never considered what God says in the Bible before and what it means for you. It is wonderful that God has helped you to come here today, brought you here so that you could hear it for yourself. Is it? Are you going to take up this promise? Are you going to take God at his promise of what he can provide for you in eternity? Actually, this is what he says. Are you going to believe him? Faith is that word, isn't it, that we usually take to mean a step into the unknown. But in the Bible, it simply means to believe. And this might sound like I'm stating the obvious, but whether you're here and you call yourself Christian or not, the first step in being a Christian is believing what God says. That's the first step. But then guess what? Every other step after that, as a Christian, is learning to believe, to trust what God says. Not complicated. Believing what God says, trusting what he says, and God can do that in your life. But will you ask him? Uh, God could have handed over the land, couldn't he? Already emptied. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he invites people to trust him and to enjoy more of their inheritance one day at a time. And he is inviting you and me to take him at his word one day at a time. To live every day by his promise. And to keep reminding others of that, being reminded of that.
It might be that you've heard these things lots of times before. But actually you've not done anything about it. There is a danger, isn't it, like the people with the generation before this generation who entered the land. that They'd heard it, but they did nothing about it. And they didn't believe God. In the end, it showed when fear came in, we can't take the land. They were trusting in themselves rather than in what God had said. God had said, yes, you can. I will. Trust me. They said, we can't, we can't do it. And actually, they did not receive the inheritance. And so there is a danger. There's a warning here in Joshua of us hearing the promise of God and saying, yeah, but I'm not doing anything about it. If you call yourself a Christian, notice that the Levites did have an inheritance, right? Read the second half of verse 14. To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance, as he said to them. That's the service in the temple. But then have a look at the second half of verse 33. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance. The wonderful thing about being a Christian is not that you are going to be saved, not just that you're going to be saved from hell for heaven, as if salvation was the thing that you inherit, but that you're going to be saved for God. You have been saved for him, and he is your inheritance. So the best thing in your life at the moment, or at any given moment as a Christian, is him. And you get to enjoy him now uh, with God's people, and you'll get to enjoy him for eternity. We've got to get that right, haven't we, in our thinking? We thank God for salvation, but salvation so that we can be with him. Salvation from judgment for heaven so that we could be with him. He is the one we delight in. He is the one who loves us. And he is the one who we will spend eternity praising. Uh, he is that wonderful. This week, what will cause you to delight and to treasure in God more? If you're a Christian, what will help you to do that? What will not help you to do that? They're the kind of decisions we're making. Whether you know we are just making those decisions as Christians, but let's think about those decisions. What are we going to? What will help us this week to treasure God? What will, what will not help us to treasure God? What do we need to put in place in our lives that will help us um, to see Him as our great reward? Let's pray. Father God, we confess that the details show just how disobedient we are. We can't really hide that, although we would like to try from you. We thank you that your holiness requires to look at the details, and yet we we shudder at the thoughts. And yet thank you so much that you have provided a people, uh, a way, the priesthood, the one priest, Jesus Christ, who could make a sacrifice for sin, his own life. Thank you that sin has been paid for by him. We pray that we would be those who would flee to you for salvation. 
Thank you that you bring us into relationship with you. And um, for those of us who would claim to know you, we pray that this week would be one where we delight in you. Where our relationship with you is, and you yourself are the one who we treasure most. Uh, we know that our hearts get flee, uh, run after so many other things as, uh, instead of you. But you are our greatest lover, the lover of our soul. We praise you. Amen. Amen.